This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 81. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 81 you're listening to. It is brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio-Technica. Welcome again to another great show uh, with another great guest. Uh, today I have on Drew Bowman. And if you're from Nashville, maybe you know Drew. If you aren't from Nashville, well, maybe you don't, but uh, I'm going to introduce you to him. Uh, I met Drew when he came to my studio uh, assisting for Justin Kneebank. When I had a studio in San Francisco many years ago, we did an iTunes original session with Keith Urban. And it was kind of like my introduction to the Nashville world, really. Uh, I had been friends with um, Rolf over at Blackbird, and Rolf sent over some uh, some equipment for uh, the guys to use. So I got the, the, the Blackbird influence there. And then, of course, um, Justin Kneebank, uh, producer-engineer, he came and assisting him was Drew Bowman, super nice guy, super talented, and uh, really fun to fun to hang out with. So, uh, anyways, Drew is going to be here. He has done quite a bit of work. Of course, uh, you know you live in Nashville, and that's a that's a popular place to to live if you want to do music. And uh, he's had the chance to work with uh, artists like Blake Shelton, Rascal Flatts, Vince Gill, Hunter Hayes, Keith Urban, like I mentioned, and uh, Patty Loveless. And he won a, uh, he's a Grammy winner. He won a Grammy for a best bluegrass album of the year in 2010. Family guy, super nice guy, you know, got to have him on the show. So anyways, Drew Bowman coming up. And uh, I don't know if you heard the last show, session number 80 with Jessica Thompson. Still thinking about that conversation. If you haven't heard it, I encourage you to go listen to it. Definitely won uh, one of our uh, most popular shows in some time. Uh, dealing with the topic of uh restoration and archiving. And Jessica was uh, kind enough to uh, add an addendum to our discussion where uh, she had some things she wanted to share on her website, uh, just some extra links and some thoughts. And one of the things that she shared in that addendum, which you can check out at uh, jessicathompsonaudio.com in her uh, what I'm thinking section, one of the things that she posted, I'm checking it out here, is a thing, it's a document, it's a PDF document from uh, Indiana University and Harvard University. And it's uh, a document called Sound Directions. It's a 168-page document. Yeah, no small small read here. And uh, it's about the best practices in audio archiving and preservation. So if you have any inclination that you might be interested in audio archiving or restoration, this is a document you really should check out. I got to say, she really influenced the hell out of me with that conversation. And it's really got me thinking long term about, you know, getting deeper into the craft, which I have uh, huge respect for what she does. And uh, this is a document I think that everybody should read from top to bottom thoroughly. And um, if it puts you to sleep, well, I don't know. It puts you to sleep. If it doesn't, well, that's another idea. That's another thing to think about. So if it doesn't put you to sleep, maybe maybe you should consider uh, some of the things in there, some of the things that uh, maybe that you want to be doing. Maybe you should be in audio archiving and restoration. Who knows? Anyhow, also wanted to, you know, just give a, a shout out um, to our friends in the African continent who have been uh, tuning in. Uh, many countries in Africa coming on board to listen to the podcast. 
and I think this is why I um, I noted that uh, in Jessica's interview, she's done um, uh, some restoration of rare vinyl and cassette recordings for uh, awesome tapes for Africa. So when we posted on Facebook, you know, each time we do a post, we pay to do a boost so we can, you know, expand our reach so we can reach more, more listeners. Uh, in the context of that, uh, I listed uh, many African countries uh, in the list. And I think that's why we're seeing such an influx of um, listeners from, uh, from those countries. So I just want to say a special welcome. Thank you for listening to all of our, our friends uh, and fellow audio folks uh, on the African continent and from all those, uh, those countries. So welcome. Hey, and I, I know I never mentioned this, but, you know, if you want to want to check out the website and you are not aware that we have a website, please head on over to www.workingclassaudio.com. Maybe you listen to the show via iTunes or some Android uh, app or a Windows app, and you're not really clear that there is a website, but there actually is. And it's got the entire archive of every everybody on there and write-ups about everybody, uh, links and uh, some special content from some of our sponsors. So uh, head on over to workingclassaudio.com and check that out. Some of you have been reaching out to me through uh, Facebook. That's totally fine, through the Messenger app. And um, it, and some of you are actually going through the uh, contact page on my uh, mattboudreau.com website. I encourage you actually to email me at matt at workingclassaudio.com if you have a show suggestion uh, or a guest suggestion for a show, I should say. Yeah, and I mentioned it, I think, in the last show. If you do listen through some of these other aggregators like iTunes, specifically on iTunes, if you like the show, uh, leave, a, leave a comment in the uh, reviews. That always helps, you know, just trying to boost the awareness of the show. And uh, yeah, more good reviews always helps. So there it is. So that's it. But I think it's time to talk to Drew Bowman. I do want to mention... We have caught Drew on vacation, and he was kind enough to uh, still do the interview, but he didn't have a DAW with him, so we're going purely on Skype. So the quality may not be what you're used to, so uh, hopefully we can uh, get a good connection here. So let's check it out. Let's get into it. Drew Bullman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, man. How you been? I'm good. What's going on? Uh, You know, it's... uh... You know, Fourth of July weekend, and uh, I know <laughs> you're on vacation, and you're taking my Skype call. It's all good, man. <laughs> all good. good to see you. Good to see you. Um, where where are you at? What are you doing right all this weekend? My parents' house for a couple of days. They live in uh, South Bend nowadays, and uh, I've got the kids up here and just messing around. Cool. How about you? Uh, yeah, we're st- we're staying home. I'm gonna go check out some fireworks on Monday, and uh, there you go. Hang out. Yeah, so I got to say welcome welcome to the podcast and thanks for thanks for doing this. I did listen to a few episodes. I didn't really know about it honestly. I hadn't been paying much attention, but uh, it's pretty cool. That's cuz you're working. Yeah, I got to got to make a living, you know yeah. what I'm saying? But yeah, no, it's a cool cool little podcast. I checked out some of the uh some of the people last night and it's pretty cool. Do you still got your place? You still got your studio? I don't know. I I uh, I got off the lease in 2012 because I was just losing it. You know, it, I was in a I was in totally in over my head. You know, I was one person with not a lot of money to run an operation that needed. I mean, you know how a studio should be run. Oh, man. Well, there. Well, and the thing is, is, most studios lose money anyways. Even <laughs> if you have clients every day, 
I've come to find out that pretty much all the studios that I work at, they're pretty much all just rich guys that own it that can afford to write it off every year. It seems like there's not, it's not a business that you can actually profit from. I know. You know, I know studios where it's the studio is kind of subsidized by like a rehearsal space. Yeah. And the two can, you know, support each other. But studios alone, man, it's a tough business. Well, I mean, think about it. The rates are the same as they were or a little lower than the 80s. And so think about how much more money we make than 1980s. So, I mean, think about like this rates at studios should be like four or five grand a day if it was relative. Yeah. And it's still, you know, a thousand to two thousand or less, five hundred to two thousand, you know, two thousand being the cap. Yeah. And it was two thousand in the eighties for a day. I think the only saving grace for some studio owners is is the the day-to-day costs. Uh I, I mean, other than rent, if you look at like most studios running, you know, running a Pro Tools rig and maybe some smaller setup. Not everybody's got an SSL and not everybody has to pay the electric bill to support an SSL or a console of that type unless they're an SSL-based studio. And even the, some of the smaller SSLs don't have the same power requirements that previous SSLs had. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, if you got an old SSL or 9,000, you're, you know, you're looking at an extra thousand of $2,000 a month in electricity. Yeah. thousand bucks. Is that for the, the console itself or do you think that's for cooling? I think both. <laughs> Those power supplies, you know, put off in the console itself, like 9,000, they put off so much heat. I, isn't that what uh, uh, Reed Shippen's uh, solution is with his power supply that he's got? Yes. Yeah, he's got a pretty good thing going. And, you know, those power supplies are known for failing a lot anyways. And a lot of it's because of heat. Yeah. But, yeah, he's got he's got a pretty good power supply he builds for sure. For the audience, you you and I met, and, and I explained this in the monologue of the show, uh, you and I met when you and Justin Kneebank came to San Francisco to record a Keith Urban uh, iTunes original session at a studio that I had at the time. And, and I've said it before to... Maybe I've even said it on the show, and I definitely have told others about it. Seeing this, what I'm going to just call this like Nashville operation come in and how it operated, the musicianship of the band and the engineering prowess of, of you and Justin, I, I'm still thinking about it to this day, several, several years later, how impressed I was with the whole thing. It just, it really gave me, I think, most West Coast people in the United States who never go to Nashville, I don't think are really that aware of how badass Nashville folks are. I just, I have such great respect for, for Nashville and the talent pool that is there. No, I mean, I appreciate it. I mean, I, I think in Nashville, a lot of stuff is on time restraints at some point mm-hmm. and maybe more than the West coast, because a lot of times it's not bands, you know, and there's not a month to record a record, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a lot of session musicians. And I think you get in the habit of like, you know, you got to do things fast. They got to be good. But like maybe the momentum of it, you can be like for me, like the momentum of having to be fast can a lot of times make it better than if I have a lot of time. You know what I'm saying? Get a little pressure, get a little fire under you and you might do perform better than sometimes if you've got a whole day to, you know, mess around with sounds and that kind of stuff. You know, most Nashville sessions, it seems like you got about 15 minutes to get drum sounds. You know, so you kind of got to have, you can switch out stuff and all that, but it's, you kind of got to have a good idea what you're going to go for, you know, and you can obviously tweak them between songs and that kind of thing, you know, as you're going. But 
most sounds for most, you know, country records are gotten in, you know, basic sounds in 20 minutes, half hour. A lot of people on the West Coast get fast sounds too, but it's kind of required, you know, and a lot of, there's a lot of demos in Nashville that they get sounds and five songs in three hours. That's a, <laughs> that's a demo session rate, you know, but record rates, you know, they, you know, they, they go for uh, between one and two to three songs in a three hour block. A lot of guys do one song in a three-hour block, but there's a lot of people that do two songs in a three-hour block. Well, also the musicianship, I think, is stellar. So half the battle is, let's say you're getting drum sounds. If you have a fantastic drummer with a well-tuned drum kit who is as prepared as you are, then those two minds of engineer, drummer coming together can really work quickly. Oh, for sure. All the musicians are killer. And like you said, all their instruments sound good. So at that point, you can just go for things. Hey, I want to go a little more this direction. And then two seconds, they can take it there. They, if you describe something tone-wise, they can go there immediately. It's not like you're searching around. They go, yeah, try this. You know, and then you can do your thing. Yeah. Which makes it a lot faster than, you know, going out there and messing around with an amp yourself or that kind of thing. Which is fun, too, sometimes. And most of the musicians out there coming into the studio to play, I'm going to just make the assumption that that's what they do on a regular basis. Yes. They're all, yeah, most of the guys I work with, they're like everyday studio cats. You know, they're working on two to three sessions a day and sessions being three-hour blocks. And it's pretty pretty much in Nashville. A lot of the sessions do officially start at 10, tracking sessions, 10 to 1. They're supposed to get an hour break. Um, two to five supposed to get an hour break six to nine so there's kind of a common protocol that happens that everybody's familiar with you know that doesn't have to be exactly that it can be loose or it can move around a little bit but that's kind of the that's kind of the union thing and it kind of works you know and like i said people you know they, they don't come in knowing any of the songs you know that they, they, that morning they write the charts usually and hear the acoustic the artist doing it acoustic in the room with the guitar or some kind of demo that was made they write the charts and learn it right then and they usually come up with the hooks a lot of times wow amazing yeah well and see the difference here is is that it's so radically expensive at least in the bay area to live that most of the musicians have day jobs and they may have a day job with a tech company or they may be, you know, working a combination of working at a coffee shop and maybe driving for Uber or Lyft. And then they're trying to, you know, fill in the gaps with playing. So they're they're not getting that constant playing all the time. And those that are doing only music are doing a lot of touring as well. So their availability is limited because they're they're coming in and out of, you know, being home. And getting, you know, the stellar bass player that you love so much, it can be hard because cause they're, cause they're, you know, on the road and then home for a week and you might get them for a day, maybe half a day if you're lucky. Anyways, so you, uh, you're from Ohio originally, right? I'm from Toledo area originally, yep. What prompted you to move to Nashville? Uh, I went to uh, Full Sail and kind of was looking around trying to figure out where I wanted to go in terms of engineering and stuff. And I thought about going to New York or L.A. at one time, but just thought Nashville would be a better place to live. And then I'd heard about the musicians and all that kind of stuff. And it's, and I went there for a weekend and kind of looked at some of the studios, and they were pretty impressive. I didn't get a chance to go to L.A. or look at the studios in New York, but I thought I'd just give it a shot. So I moved there in 98, started interning at a place called The Sound Kitchen. 
and started uh, being assistant there probably by, you know, early 99. Worked with tons and tons of engineers there. It was a good facility at the time. It was seven studios. It was like 30,000 square feet. That studio doesn't really exist much anymore. It's it's around, but it's really not in the game. Mm. But I met a ton of engineers there, and I met Justin Niebank there, who I assisted for for a lot of years and worked with and still see a lot. And uh, so that was a great connection, and he taught me a ton of stuff. Do you mainly assist, or do you do you are you first engineer or producer on any on any sessions currently that you're working on? No, I'm mostly first engineer on most things. Uh, I do work with Justin every once in a while still if he needs me to, or uh, sometimes we do stuff together or he's producing something, I'll do the overdubs. But uh, I'm pretty much firsting all the time now, mm-hmm. tracking tracking about half the time, or probably tracking a quarter of the time, overdubs a quarter, and then uh, mixing. But it's all, mixing's pretty much all in the box nowadays, at least in Nashville. It's pretty rare. It's, uh, you know, at studios. I pretty much mix in my house in the box, and even Justin mixes his house in the box pretty much. Well, I'm I'm a big in the box mixing fan, and always kind of gravitate towards those who do it. Like Andrew Sheps does it, you know, quite a bit. So, is there is there ever any stigma in Nashville about mixing in the box, do, do, or do people are there different camps of people? There's different camps for sure. I think there was a lot more stigma five years ago. And I think people have kind of realized, hey, if you if you know what you're doing and you have the qualifications, you can kind of make in the box sound as good as out of the box. It's like if, it, if there's not as much top end, you add a little more. You know, if you're a good engineer, you pretty much can make anything sound good. And in my opinion, in the box, it's more flexible. And you 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 actually when you get used to it, it's really hard to go back to mix on a console. At least for me, it's like you want to go do something really quick, automate something. You're like, oh, I can't do that. It's, it's, you know, 20 steps and it's like, you know, you automate the small fader cut and all that kind of stuff that we used to do. You get used to it and you get spoiled. And then also in Nashville, I'm probably out there too. It's, it's workflow too, because um, you've got, you know, somebody wants to pop something up and make a quick change and they already mastered once. And it's a five minute change. If it's in the box, if it's on a console, it's a half a day or you know, bring all the gear and plug it all up, recall it, you know, four grand later where, you know, if it's in the box, it's just a click. Interesting. Are there any tricks that the people that you run with or that you associate with like to use to bring more of the traditional methods and or sounds into the in the box mixing? Some people do do the split out box stuff too. And I've done it before where you, you know, split out 16 pairs, eight stereo pairs, you know, drums, and you have subgroups that works pretty well. And there is some difference, I think, you know, doing that. But at the same time, I think you can kind of compensate for that. Um, In terms of like bringing stuff analog wise, I mean, I think a lot of the same tricks you use on the console in terms of the plugins and all that kind of stuff, it's it's all the same tricks, side side chain compression, that kind of stuff. It's all I use all the same kind of stuff that I would have used if I was on a console. Mm-hmm. It's just easier. Yeah. Are you mixing in Pro Tools? Yeah, I'm mixing mixing in Pro Tools, yeah. And it's um, you know, using a ton of UAD plugins, pretty much have most of those. And uh, a lot of the wave plugins and there's so many great plugs nowadays. Um, some of the new ones is that uh, Acme Opticon. I don't know if you use that yet, mm-hmm. but there's a hardware piece out for that too that I bought. It's an amazing compressor. This guy out of Detroit made it, and um, it's worth checking out. Acme Opticon. I'll have to look into that. Yeah. Now, what about 
making a living and 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 surviving now nashville from what i understand is still a relatively affordable place to live and obviously there's a whole industry and infrastructure of music going on so are you happy where you're at in terms of making a living and all that yeah i've been i've been fortunate i I pretty much tend to work six days a week still and it's fairly hectic and obviously there's slow times at some point, but, um, for the most part, I've been, you know, that since 99, I've been pretty much busy. I've had a couple low points, but for the most part, I'm as busy as I need to be. And, you know, there's, there's some days you're working on, you know, big, big budget records and other days you're doing more custom records and that kind of stuff. But even when you're doing lower budget stuff, a lot of times you meet great people and you actually work on some really great music. And so it's really, kind of a it's kind of nice to be able to do both Hmm. it's the advantage of you know working on the big label stuff and then also meeting some new people that are doing some stuff that you don't normally get to do and taking a little more time experimenting sometimes and yeah it's it's fun to be able to do all that so are you handling your own career or do you have any kind of manager or no it's just word of mouth it's crazy i don't know how it happens a lot of times you're only booked a couple weeks out at least in my opinion you know it's in my in my world and it just happens to be phone calls or text and it's just you know you might work on a big get called for a big record like four days ahead of time it's happened tons of times to me you're like i can't believe they didn't book anybody or something fell out or they moved it around and the guy that was doing it couldn't do it but it's amazing the kind of records you get called for a week out and you know you're always when you get to that end of two weeks you're like well i'm not going to be working after two weeks and it always flows in <laughs> and so it's it's the craziest thing and so people are just like calling, texting, emailing. And so you're in sessions six days a week and you're trying to handle all this and then obviously still, you know, be a family man as well. So how does that work? How do you juggle it all? Yeah, I don't know. You just, uh, you get used to it, you know, and you get five minutes, you text people back and look at your calendar on your phone and, you know, see if you can do it or not. You know, it's just, just you get used to it. You don't think about it anymore. But it's mostly, I swear, 90% of the stuff I get booked on nowadays is from text message. I rarely even get any calls. Wow. It's almost always a text. Well, and it's, you know, the, the, the brevity in which you do a session where, you know, you're talking about getting drum sounds in 15 minutes and, you know, a certain amount of songs in a, in a very short time frame. The communication also is truncated a bit. It seems so via text, uh, you don't have to get in the middle of a session and, uh, you know, call and interrupt the session. So texting obviously works quite well. And I guess there's not a lot of, uh, uh, hemming and hawing or, you know, like, well, I think we're going to do this, but I'm not sure. It's just, can you be here at this time doing this session? I assume. Yeah, that's what it is. It's like, can you do it these dates? Because a lot of times, and sometimes they're like, hey, what studio do you want to do it at if you can do it? And other times, it's like the studio's booked already. You know, the players are booked. Can you do it? You know? Or sometimes it's like, hey, we don't have a studio yet. Is there a place you want to work? You know, half the time it's like that. Half the time it's booked. So, I mean, there's some studios I like to work at if I get a choice, but there's really not any bad studios in Nashville. There's a ton of them, and they're, they're all pretty great. And most of them have really great assistants that, you know, they may not be staffed there, but they work there all the time. So they feel like staff guys. And so they all know the rooms really well. You have a couple guys I like to use as assistants, but if they're not available, you know, there's other tons of guys that are great. 
And as far as, you know, rates for across the board, is there just, you know, I, I know that there's a protocol with like, you know, when people take breaks at sessions and stuff like that, there's a lot of uh, common knowledge stuff. Are the rates common knowledge? Is it just like everybody kind of works in a general? In general, there's, you know, it's mostly day rates for engineers, as far as I know, at least, you know, and it, it can vary, you know, but it's, there's definitely set rates. There's stuff you can get away with and stuff you can't, but. I don't, I don't know what the rates are out there, but I would say the average engineer, tracking engineer in this town kind of rate for a big project is in the $800 a day range, I guess. If you're a tracking engineer and you're working on big projects, I would guess it's in that kind of average, a little more sometimes, a little less. Wow. Yeah, it, it varies out here depending on who you're getting, and it can be anywhere from, I know you're going to laugh when I say this, it can be anywhere from $200 a day to, you know, eight or eight or a thousand depending on who you're getting right i mean it can be lower here too you know it can be a lot higher too so it's you know it's depending you know is it a is it a big country artist that's you know been around a while and they've got you know all session players booked and they're working in nice studios it can be higher but the budget happens to be even the big budget records in this town are lower than they were 10 years ago by significantly what about billing? How do you, with your work at six days a week, you've got a family, you're doing all these sessions. How do you handle all your billing? Do you forget? No, I don't forget, but uh, it can be hectic. I, I usually, uh, I'm, I'm not that, or, I'm organized, but I do it in a, a non-organized way, kind of. I kind of just keep track of what I did on those days in my phone, you know, and then at some point, you know, I catch up maybe once a week. Or if I if I think about it every night, I go home and because we have to keep track of the song titles and stuff like that. Because major labels won't pay you unless you have song titles on your invoices, and um, you know, kind of write down the song titles every night in an invoice. And so you kind of keep track of it that way. If you think about it, take ten minutes when you get home, you know, to write in an invoice. Uh huh. And if you do that, you kind of never get behind. I haven't researched this, but I wonder if on uh, Android or, or iPhone or iPad, if there's a uh billing solution that one can carry with them in a portable fashion to stay on top of this. That would be something that I should look into. You're right. That, that, that would make it easier for sure. Then you're not, you know, writing it down twice or writing it on a post-it note or something before you leave the studio. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Boy, there's a niche right there, you know, just find out what the particulars are of Nashville and yeah. use that as a, as a, uh, to standardize for, uh, for engineers. For sure. Yeah. I mean, there are some engineers that use guys to bill for them. I know a few, but the problem is even if you got a guy billing for you, you kind of got to provide the song titles and stuff like that because they got to know, they still got to know what days you worked, who was the artist, what the song titles were. I mean, the drag about billing, as you probably know, is it can take months to get paid from major labels. You know, it can be 60 to 180 days, depending on the label, you know? And so it's more of keeping up with, Hey, why haven't I gotten paid for this sometimes, you know? But the thing is, if you're working every day, even if it's 60 or 80 days, it kind of all rolls in because you're, you know, you're working every day. So eventually it just rolls in consistently. Eventually it comes around. It comes around consistently. So it's like if you take two weeks off or something and at Christmas or something, you might feel a little whole. But <laughs> I, f- I have a uh, an old friend of mine who's a who's a a doctor who said when he first started his practice, I, I said, "How do you how do you deal with billing and how does that work?" He goes, "Well, it's kind of like taking dollar bills and shoving them down a, into a pipe. Eventually, they're going to get to the end of the pipe, and that's <laughs> when you're going to get paid." <laughs> <laughs> I understand that. 
It feels like that some days. It's it sounds so hectic for you. It sounds you know like you like you say six days a week, family billing, always always moving, always uh, getting stuff done. At any point, do you just carve out a set of time and say, "I'm going on vacation" or "I'm doing this and I'm not working"? And do people flip out yeah, and go? I, well, I usually don't do that. I don't say it like that when I'm going to do it. I usually uh, say I'm booked. Ah. Uh, if I'm going to, you know, go out for a week, but I don't, I don't take that much. I usually take a couple of weeks of Christmas. That's the time it's slow anyways, you know, and kind of take a couple of weeks off then and maybe a week or so on the Christmas, you know, or in the summertime, maybe a few days here and there, but you know. In all these years of working in Nashville, what, what are some of the things that you've discovered just from a uh, navigating your career? What are some of the thing, the lessons you've learned or the, the things that you do to ensure that you continue to work? I think a lot of it's you got to you, a you got to get good at some point. But I think you can there's some guys that can sneak by for years without being, you know, not not bad by any means. But, you know, you got to make people feel feel comfortable and, you know, feel like they have confidence in you um, and, and get you got to get good good board mix. Like if you're tracking your board mix should sound like a, a mix, you know, even if your tones aren't perfect, you know, make people feel like it's a record, keep things in balance and you'll always work. You'll always track. In my opinion, if it sounds good in the control room, you'll always work. And, you know, and then the other thing is, you know, be able to handle crazy situations because they're, you know, things get hectic, especially when you're doing a lot of songs and you're moving fast and you got 10 minutes less and you got it left and you got to get another one or something like that. Or if you have technical problems, be able to stay calm and get it solved fairly quickly. Mm. You know, just, it's, it's really the simple things and be easy to get along with, be fun to be around. You know, it's just common sense stuff like any business, you know, you're, you're hired to help them. So you want to make sure that everybody's comfortable. Everybody's having a good time. The other important thing for me on a tracking session for sure is making sure the cue mix is, you know, headphone mix is perfect. In my opinion, everybody plays better. Everybody's happier. Everybody has a good time. And, you know, in Nashville, I'm, I know they have that out in the West Coast, too, but we have a lot of uh, multi-cue systems, as everybody does nowadays. But I still like to give a normal two-mix. Mm. Works like a little, little heavier drum mix, but everything's in it except the vocal. You know, so everybody can kind of push that up and then can add a little, you know, more bass if they want or a little guitar but they're not making their own mix and everybody's got a whole different mix. Everybody kind of starts on the same page then. Yeah, it's interesting. I always find the sessions where I provide a two mix in the in the headphones, um, that seems to keep everything moving a little quicker than when you you present the artist or the musicians with, okay, so here's your bass and here's your drums and okay, and then they start having to wear a different hat. Yeah, I mean, these session guys can do anything, but they'd prefer to just push up a mix and then add a little bit of something else they need. You know, it's easier on everybody. And, you know, I, I know that sometimes musicians deal with bad headphones mixes, and that can make a huge difference on how good they play and how good a day you have. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of simple things you can do to make sessions go better. You know, and to get rehired, you know. Can you elaborate on that a little more on, on some of the other things that maybe you take for granted now that you just do as a habit? I assisted for a lot of years. So the simple things, you know, even like just making sure there's tons of water out in the room, you know, for musicians and, you know, 
the artist. And it can be that simple, sharp pencils. And even when I engineer and have an assistant, I always go walk out in the room before everybody gets here and make sure little things like that are taken care of. Usually they are, but, you know, there's so many little things that can throw off a day. Yeah. As in Nashville, the setups are pretty good. As you saw, even when we come out there, we're pretty picky about making sure everything's working before anybody walks in the room. And almost all sessions in Nashville are set up the night before. You may not be able to get in there to midnight because the session may not end before you to midnight. But still, to get everything set up and working the night before. And then I usually would re-click the mics um, the next morning with the clicker box. The Galaxy and, box. Yeah, the Galaxy boxes, which are great. Because you can... You get so used to how those things sound. I've used those things for, you know, 16 or 18 years. And you can tell if something's half-patched by how it sounds. You're so used to hearing it. You can be like, oh, there's a bad connection. There's a bad mic. we got to switch things out. Where if you're just talking into a mic to check it, you can't always tell if things are right until somebody hits a drum. So just for, for the audience, because I don't think a lot of people know about the the galaxy clicker thing it basically you have on on one end in front of a mic you have a little box that you press a button and it makes a clicking sound yes and then that the person in the control room hears it there's a there's another box in the control room that has a you can hold up to the speaker and it can show you the phase what's kind of like just basically if there's not a back cable that's wired backwards um, or even like a switch on the console, like if a phase switch was pushed before you got in there and didn't get normaled out correctly, and you're clicking your mics, it's happened to me tons of times, and you're like, oh, the phase button's down on the console, which you would have probably figured that out at some point, but you would have been like, you know, it would have been pushed down, you wouldn't have noticed it right away. Interesting. It's just, just little things like that. Phase switches normally don't have lights so on consoles, so... You know, it's easy to, when they get normaled out by an intern or something the night before, they don't get pushed up. Yeah. I was going to say that sucks when you go and you're, you're working and all of a sudden you're like, what, what, why is this out of phase? Oh, and you look up and yeah. in the middle of the performance when you're like, oh, do I switch totally. it now or do I switch it after the take? Yeah. I mean, Justin told me something, uh, Kneebank, the guy that I worked for for years, told me something one time that I always think of and it's always true. If something seems weird to you while you're tracking or getting sounds or setting up, if something seems like, I don't know if that's right, and you go, yeah, it's probably fine. It's probably not fine. You know, you've been doing this for 15, 16, 17 years. If something seems weird, it's probably wrong. You know, and pretty much always when that thought goes through my head, it seems weird or something doesn't seem right. If you don't, if you let it go, you find out later it was wrong. You know, so usually if that thought comes through my head, you start digging into it a little more. You know, or like, man, that mic sounds a little thin. Ah, it's probably okay. You know, you've had that before where you're like, <laughs> I don't know, it doesn't sound like maybe it's just him out there. Maybe he's just singing a little different today. You know, or something like that. And it's actually, you know, a, a mic that's got a that end, uh, you know, is half patched or something. Dirty EQ switch, you know, clicked out fine, but you put the EQ in and, you know, it's a dirty pot. That happens all the time. Okay, hope you're enjoying the interview here with our friend, Mr. Drew Bowman, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I want to take a sponsor break with our friends from Audio Technica for a second. I want to hip you to a microphone called the AT2035. It's a large diaphragm condenser mic. And, uh, Super inexpensive, but very, very good sounding, very reliable. Uh, large diaphragm, uh, high SPL handling. It's cardioid pattern, of course. Uh, there's a low frequency roll off at 80 hertz. Maximum input level is 148 dB sound pressure level. It comes with a shock mount. 
list price is 249. I am seeing it online for 149. And you probably ask, well, Matt, how do you know? Have you heard the mic? Yes, I have actually. I've used the mic and I'm going to post uh, on the Drew Bowman section of the uh, Working Class Audio website. There'll be a link um, and I'll mention, you know, AT2035 mentioned in sponsor break. Uh, and there's a link there. I did some recording with uh, an artist named Josephine Johnson. I'm going to link to her SoundCloud page, uh, specifically to a song that we did here in my mix room and uh, her playing guitar and a little uh, little mandolin and singing. And the vocal mic that we used was the AT2035. And I want you to check that out. It's pretty cool and very inexpensive. So maybe you need a new microphone and you don't want to uh, overspend. And if uh, 149 bucks is uh, what you want to spend, then I highly recommend you check this mic out. This is what we call good bang for the buck. So there you go. Oh, I also didn't, I didn't mention this earlier. There's a 10 dB pad as well. So shock mount, 10 dB pad, low cut filter at 80 hertz, large diaphragm condenser comes with the shock mount and you can get it for 149 online. How about that? Or maybe at your local pro audio dealer. Don't forget about them. And uh, that's it. So let's get back into it with Mr. Drew Bowman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So when you're running between these different places, you know, I know that a lot of, there's a lot of studios in Nashville and there's a lot of possibilities for things to not go your way, whether it's the Pro Tools rig or the board or the patch bay or something. How do you handle that? I mean, there's always stuff that breaks. You'd always, sometimes you have to move stuff, you know, in the middle session or when you're getting sound, something happens. But like I say, the assistants are really great in this town. And I've been assisted so many years. I'm paranoid as well. So I always double check them usually when I get there, either if I go in the night before for a minute or come early in the morning, we'd click together. Even after they've already done it, we might catch something. But I mean, you know, gear breaks. It's just part of life. And so you just expect it to break. Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. Do you buy a lot of gear yourself? I've got a fair amount of gear. <clears throat> I've got a I've got a good microphone. I got one of the Neumann 269s, like a 64. It's a really nice mic. So like basically a 67, great vocal mic. Mm-hmm. I've got some 1176s and uh, some API pre's and 550A EQs and one of those Acme compressors. And hey, I got a fair amount of gear lying around. And a lot of times I mostly use that for tracking. You know, there's certain gear that you that some studios don't have that you always want to have. I, I like APIs, even though a lot of studios have them. You know, and, they, you know, you do overdubs at your house nowadays, too. Yeah. What about work-life balance with the family, and how do you juggle that? It's tough to juggle. I've kind of come to the terms of this isn't really a job. It's more of a lifestyle. It kind of can run your life, so you got to be careful about it. If you have, if you're home, you know, and you can stop mixing at 6.30 or so and, you know, play with the kids or whatever for a couple hours and then you can come back to it late at night. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. It's hard to juggle though. You know, you kind of, as a lot of engineers would say, you kind of got to come to the reality that you don't have a lot of life outside of this just because it is very consuming, Mm -hmm. you know, but that's why you have to also enjoy it you know, and, and get something out of it. It's tough for anybody to juggle any kind of relationship or family life, I would think. But there are spurts where you're not busy, but, you know, it's either all the way on or all the way off, it seems like. There's no, like, eight-hour days. Uh, you know, it's either you're working a lot or you're like, huh, been off for a few days. So, uh, at least for me, that's how it is. Do you ever get scared, like, if the phone doesn't ring? I used to years ago. I kind of now I go, like, yeah, it's probably going to ring. 
at some point. But I, I think I don't know. I think you make enough connections, you know, that it's something that you know, and you're confident in your skills. I think people are going to come back at some point if you get that slow. I, like I said, I've been fortunate. I haven't had to struggle with that tons, but it's it happens. You know, and it could happen any day. You just never know. It's like any self-employed person, I guess. You know, <laughs> and there's a lot of great engineers. Still, you know, they're all great. There's there's a lot of everybody does stuff different, but there's and that's a great thing about Nashville too. Most engine, most people are we're friends with most of those guys, and so that's the other tricky thing. If you get called for a gig that your friend always does, it's like, should I be taking this or not? I don't ever, I don't ever solicit for work. I just let it come to me. Cause I don't want to be the guy taking the work from somebody else. Ah, uh, that's, uh, that's an interesting philosophy and an in- interesting conundrum as well, because some engineers can be territorial. I've experienced in my past and get upset when, Hey man, you're, you know, that's my gig. What, do, how come you're doing it? But in that town, I guess there's just so much quantity that, uh, there's enough work for everybody. Would, would you say? There's a lot of work. I mean, that thing that you're talking about does happen. And like, if I'm ever in that situation, I'll just say, Hey, I was called for the gig and I could do it. I assume that you were booked. And sometimes it is that way. They called the other person first. They normally use, and he was booked and it's the only days they could do it. And so they use you. And usually we all understand that because it all happens to everybody. I think you can't take these kind of things personal. In my opinion, there's a lot of work. There's a lot of great people. You kind of just, do your thing and do a good job and it's going to come back around. It all sounds fantastic. It all sounds like, you know, this, I don't know, recording utopia in my mind to some degree, but realistically, is there a lot of politics involved? A lot of, a lot of BS that goes on that we're not aware of. I mean, there's always politics, but you know, I I don't deal with a lot of that personally, you know, there's, that's more producers have to deal with labels and, you know, um, deadlines and you obviously have to deal with deadlines and that can be crazy because a lot of times deadlines you're given a certain deadline to have a mix done or something like that and then you're supposed to get it the week before on a Monday and you're supposed to have it by that next Monday and it's you know five or six songs and they may not get it to you to Wednesday and it happens all the time but they still expect it by Monday and so you kind of cut out those days for them you know it's just that kind of stuff happens a lot so then you have to, you know, figure out a way to make it work. Or they moved there. They got there late. and You had something else booked on the backside. And so you're trying to figure out how to shuffle around your mixing days or whatever and move things around. It seems like everything moves nowadays. So it's not like the old days you got booked a month out and it never moved. For tracking day books a month out, I'm usually like, this thing's going to move. Yeah. Do you get, you get suspicious of days that are booked that far out? Yeah. Yeah. It's probably going to move. <laughs> yeah. And then obviously the, the juggling factor where, you know, somebody s- says, Hey, I, I need you on a Monday. And then they move it and say, well, actually we need you for the Wednesday. And then somebody else comes in and books that Monday. And then they say, actually, it's going to be on the Monday. Then you have to say, well, I've, you told me it moves. So I booked. That happens all the time. Yep. And that's all you can do. But the thing is most people are understanding because, you know, deadlines move for everybody it seems like everything's moving nowadays i don't know i don't know why and i don't know why projects get booked so last minute i think a lot of it is you know on a country project they might cut three songs and then mix the singles and try to get a single going and then if it doesn't go they they're you know less gun shy about going and doing more stuff and if it does go they want to immediately get in there and do it and finish it and get it out 
you know, the records aren't done in Nashville. Like, okay, we're going to start recording today. And we're going to cut 10 songs in the next week. It's like, we're going to cut two songs and then we're going to come back two weeks later. And we're going to cut two songs for one day. Two day tracking sessions happen. One or two day tracking sessions. Sometimes you get three or four, but in the old days, it was like five day tracking sessions. But nowadays it's one or two days at a time. And then you come back for months, one or two days at a time for that same artist. And then you might have a lot of overdub days, but it's not like they cut the whole record and then do all the overdubs. Interesting. The projects that you're mixing, are they projects that you typically tracked? Are they smaller bands? Are they bigger bands? Like what's, what's the bulk of your work made up of on the it mixing? It can be both. I mean, it's some of the stuff, stuff I tracked other times, it's like, uh, it could be stuff that was tracked at somebody's house or something. Somebody else cut it in Nashville studio, another engineer. It can kind of vary. Now, there's a couple guys that I do a lot of tracking for that I do most of their mixing to. And there's other guys that I just do a lot of tracking for and overdubs for, and then somebody else mixes it. Um, sometimes Justin Ebeck ends up mixing a lot of stuff I track. He still does a lot of tracking, but he doesn't do as much as he used to. And so some of his guys, some of the guys he used to work for a ton have been using me or, you know, vice versa, you know, or sometimes I might assist him on something that he's doing. When it comes to mixing, and the, the techniques used to mix, uh, I mean, Nashville, a lot of country, I'm going to just, and I know that there's more than just country music that happens in Nashville. So we'll, we'll get that out of the way. But a lot of those modern country records now from the current crop of artists have quite a, a heavy rock feel in general. And the drums are always super impactful. Is there a lot of drum triggering going on? There's some. There's definitely some. For sure. I mean, a lot of guys are pretty organic, but they wouldn't they wouldn't get rid of the main snare, but they might add some kind of dot or some kind of ambient sna- sample, you know. I mean, unless it sounds rude, but most people aren't getting rid of the original snare and totally replacing it. But yeah, there's additive samples for sure. There's a lot of loops, you know, and programming stuff around the drums too. You know, but yeah, there's definitely samples. I've noticed that just the amount of loops and extraneous electronic-y type sounds that have crept into this current generation of, of country artists, which, you know, some do not like that and, and consider consider it not to be country music and have very, very strong opinions about that, which I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But it's interesting just to observe, uh, you know, objectively, just to listen and go, huh. That's not something I, I'm used to hearing in, in that style of music, but... Uh, it's it's weird. Country is kind of, you know, it's kind of some of the stuff that I work on even, I'm like, how can they get away with this in country music, you know? But at the same time, I'm like, if it's a good song and the lyrics are kind of tilted towards country, they can kind of get away with it. Uh-huh. It's kind of like they can kind of do whatever they want. If it's a good song and a good good singer and the lyrics are tilted that way they can kind of get get away with it. But do you also work on a lot of rock projects? Work on some. Not as many as country. Um, but yeah, I do work on some. I work on, you know, but not as much. Not me as much. But I will, for sure. There just doesn't seem to be as much of that in Nashville. <clears throat> There's definitely some, but the thing is, a lot of those rock projects, they have their own studios. Um, and they're, you know, they're spending a lot of time. Yeah. You know, they're not coming in. You know, some of them are, but a lot of them have got their own places and a lot of artists in general. I mean, I work a lot for Vince Gill. He's got his own studio. We track out there. 
um, Cheryl Crow, same thing. She's got her own studio track out there, do overdubs out there. They've kind of got their own places. So that's that also hurts the commercial facilities too because most of the big artists have a place they can at least do overdubs. Most of them can track out there, full consoles, whole deal. Yeah, that's that's definitely happened out here. You know, Green Day, of course, has their own place. Metallica has their own place. So it seems like when you get to a certain level, you know, if you're recording all the time, it makes sense. You have a studio and same thing. If, if you're, if you're flying all, all over, you know, somebody like Iron Maiden, of course you're going to have your own airplane that makes the most sense economically. So I, I get that. I'm curious about, uh, the influence of other engineers and producers on you. And I, I know that you worked for many years for Justin, so I'm, I'm sure Justin has had uh, a great uh, influence on you. But I'm curious what, what other engineers or producers in Nashville or out of Nashville influence you that you really, off the top of your head, you think, oh, this, this particular person really uh, impacts me. Another guy, engineer I worked with a lot for years on and off and good friend still, Steve Marcantonio. He's done tons of Crunchy Records, engineer. Um, great guy. He's taught me tons of stuff, too, besides him and Justin. Producer-wise, I've worked a ton with Dan Huff over the years. And he's, first off, a great guy. He's, he's a genius musically. And he's just, um, I've been fortunate to work for him a lot still. And he's been great influence, just, you know, great person, great mentor. Dan has done a lot of Rascal Flat stuff. Is that correct? He's done a lot of Rascal Flats. He's done all those Keith Urban records. He's done, he's, he's basically done a lot of the um, country stuff the last 15 years in Nashville. He's done very well. He's, he's one of the best guitar players in the world and just um, great producer. Hmm. Um, some other great producers in town, the guy, Frank Rogers, who's done a lot of country stuff. I worked on and off with for years. It's been a kind of a mentor. And then outside of Nashville, there's there's engineers that you know I've I've not met, but like you know I think Eric Valentine is one of the best engineers, just brilliant. Uh, the sounds he gets, he is a mad genius. I really yeah. like Eric. I uh, have been using his uh, preamp some undertone. Yeah, I think those things are unbelievable. I don't own any yet, but I want to get some. I've used them a bunch. They're, I don't know. Have you had a chance to play with them yet or not? I have not. I've <laughs> only seen his console. And, you know, I mean, what can you say? It, it, the guy is serious and a deep, deep thinker. And uh, if you get a chance, listen to his, his my uh, my interview with him on the show. He's He's great. Oh, yeah. He seems like a great guy. Yeah. Just don't listen to his interview with the kids around because he says, he says, uh, fuck like every other word. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I understand. That's, yeah. I mean, but you know, there's obviously there's a lot of great engineers, you know, to pull from in terms of listening to stuff. And I think it's smart to always be listening to outside music out of the genre that you're working in a lot because, you know, that influences a lot of stuff you do, in my opinion, and to keep current what's going on and, you know, tone wise, what's going on and what's, what's working. And, you know, there's a lot of great stuff out here in the radio and there's stuff that's on like, huh, you know, but a lot of stuff nowadays on the radio is done in somebody's bedroom and they get a big mixer to mix it, you know? So, I mean, I know how much of a struggle can be sometimes when you get amateur sounding tracks, not that they're amateur, but the tones can be, and that you have to get it to sound like a record. Yeah. But 
I don't know. It seems like you play in the big leagues, and so you have been brought up in that. So you, I'm sure the tones you get are stellar. I, you know, going back to what you were saying about like what keeps you employed, and you were talking about having, you know, the mix in the control room as things are being tracked, sounding as much like a record as possible. Uh, that is one of the things that to this day stuck stuck with me for that one Keith Urban session I met you on, and that was I remember walking into the room. And listening and being in complete awe of how good it sounded and complete it sounded. And then realized, I looked to my right and I realized, oh my God, the band is playing right now. And it yeah. sounds like that right now. Oh my God. That was, that, was a, that was a real growing up experience for me right then and there. Yeah, I mean, that, <clears throat> Justin's always been great at that. And he's taught me a lot about that, you know, making it sound like a record at all times, even if you're doing overdubs, not to be pushing up the guitar, you're overdubbing 10 dB above the track. Make it sound like it's, you know, in the track, like you'd mix it, because that's where you're going to hear it. So why should you hear it 10 dB ahead, you know, when you're when you're tracking it? Except when the guitar player says, can you turn me up louder than everybody else? Yeah, well, that's true. If you got them in the control room or whatever, you might have to do that. Generally, uh, I always ask this. It's uh, kind of a broad question, and you can choose to answer it in any way you choose. What's your economic philosophy as an engineer to try to you know, maintain, to make a living? And are there things that you purposely do or don't do? Or do you just say, I'm just going to work and just bring it all in and see what happens? I pretty much don't turn down any work unless I can't do it. In my in my opinion, it's like why should I sit at home and do nothing? If something comes in that's lower but money or budget, I do it because I, I always learn something from it, and I usually meet some good people. And I'm you know I you know you get really high paying gigs sometimes, and you get lower gigs, and I'm not one to turn down the lower gigs uh, if I can't do it. I can't do it you know, time-wise or, you know, schedule-wise. And I'm not one to cancel even low-paying gigs if a big one comes in. I just I just don't do that. It's just not worth it to me. It's just money in the long run. It's like you can make more of that next week. And so I'm, you know, I make a decent living. I've never had a problem making a decent living. So why should I? I'm not going to get greedy. It's not worth it. And it's, it's always kind of worked. I like that. And plus it gives you integrity with uh, on those lower-paying gigs as well. You know, and if you're not canceling, then you don't get a reputation like, oh, man, you know, we hired him. But then, of course, he took the bigger paying gig. And Yeah, it's not worth it to me. It's like, you know, if you're good enough, you're going to get called for those gigs you miss out on again next time anyways. That's usually what ends up happening. And if you don't, you're going to get something else. Yeah, it always seems to come around. I don't I don't worry about it. And like, I've kind of learned that somewhat from Justin, too. It's like, you know, if you're good, the money comes. If you're not good and you're worried about the money, money may never come. So it kind of just, it's just kind of, you know, you work and do your best work and the money will come at some point, but it's like, if it doesn't, you just work harder and you know, it's, it's just money. Yeah. I like your work ethic. It, 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 it's nice. It's, it's healthy. I appreciate it. Well, we're just about out of time here, but uh, when you take the lower paying gigs, does it ever concern you that, you know, pe that people are going to talk and then when you say, well, okay, I can do this bigger gig, do they ever come back and say, well, I heard you did this gig for this much money. Why are you charging me this? Well, you know what I normally do? And somebody told me this years ago, it's always worked for me. Whenever I invoice even the lower paying gigs, I always show my full rate and show it as a discount because it's basically what it is. And so then if anybody ever comes back, I'm like, well, that was a discounted rate, you know? 
and it's not discounted this time or it's, it, you know, whatever, but always show it. Don't show yourself as you work for that much. Show it as this is your normal rate and you're doing this is a discounted thing. And so you always kind of keep your rate where you keep it and then you just show discounts. That is a brilliant piece of advice. And then you never get anybody going, hey, how'd you, why do you charge them this? You go, well, this is a discounted thing. You know, I actually showed them my normal rate. They come back three or four years later and they got a big budget. You know, you charge them your normal rate. Interesting. Does anybody ever say, well, how come you can't give me the discounted rate? No, I don't, I don't normally get that. That's good. I really don't. Okay. Well, that is a great piece of advice. That, that alone is, is gold right there. Well, um, Hey man, I appreciate you taking time out of your vacation there at your folks' house uh, to talk to me today, and uh, really good to see you. Good to talk to yeah. you. I hope to come out to Nashville at some point. The amount of people I now know out there is grown so much that it seems stupid not to come out there to visit. Yeah, definitely, you need to. So yeah, it's 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 a great place and uh, full of a lot of very talented and great people too. So uh, yeah, I mean, I'd love to show you around. I mean, I know you know a lot of people out here, but if you ever get in town, I'd love to take you to some studios and show you some stuff. Definitely. Yeah, socially, do you? Do you, I know you're busy. Do you spend a lot of time with uh, other engineers? Do you hang out with Vance or do you uh, see uh, Ryan I, Hewitt or? I see those guys around. I don't know Ryan that well. I've met him a couple of times. I don't, I don't really know him that well. I do know Vance, um, you know, and I do, I do sometimes go to events where they're at, but I don't, I don't hang out a ton. It's more like seeing them people at studios. And I know some guys do more than others. Usually when I'm done working, I want to get home a lot of times, you know, and that's where you got to keep your balance. It's easy to go out, you know, to dinner or something with somebody afterwards, but I, you know, which I don't mind doing. Yeah. It's just that, you know, there's just not time sometimes. You got a family and you got to come home and yeah. see those kids. Yeah. But yeah, those guys are all great guys. Great dudes. Very cool. Well, Drew, thank you again. And, uh, oh, yeah, thanks man for asking me. I appreciate you thinking of me. Oh yeah. Well, happy 4th of July to you. Thank you. You too. And Have a good weekend. Yeah. You too. Take care. Okay, good to talk to you, buddy. See ya. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, man. Bye. There he is, Drew Bowman, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to talk to Drew and glad that he could take the time out of his vacation to chat with us. So, my friends, that is about it. It's time to head out. We want to say our thanks to our friend, Mr. Cliff Truesdell, for that music. And, of course, Chuck Smith, voice over at the front, and Cole Williams for all of his back-end help with YouTube and social media stuff. And I want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. I want to thank all of our listeners. I appreciate you taking the time. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, 
Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.